It's time for yet another episode of From the Bridge. This is Rick Jones, and today's show is all about physical places and experiences. My guest angler is Kimberly Bowden, the lovely, talented, and accomplished executive director of the College Football Hall of Fame in Atlanta, Georgia. We'll talk about her career, what she does at the Hall of Fame, and her plans to make the Hall even more successful. We'll have yet another opinion from the soapbox and another fun place to eat on the road with Rick. It's a Hall of Fame show today from the bridge. Yesterday, I spent a great deal of time both rocking and dancing with my new grandson. He's only a month old, but already seems to like music. So we rocked in more ways than one to music by the Glenn Miller Orchestra. One of my favorite songs from that band is the classic In the Mood. I think that song sums up where we are right now. We're in the mood to get back to events. We're in the mood to get back to college football and concerts and festivals or D, all of the above. We've had several other periods in our history like this. We came out of the First World War at the same time with a pandemic called the Spanish Flu. The combination of the war and the Spanish Flu created this immense desire to get back and be with other people. And that led to what we call now the Roaring Twenties. That was the golden age of both sport and entertainment in America. Same thing happened post-Second World War. We, you know, defeated the Japanese and the Germans. We came home and we were in the mood again to rebuild our economy. And it led to the late 1940s and really the 1950s, which were, again, a glorious era of sports and entertainment. And now in this post-COVID-19 world, we just can't wait to get back We're in the mood for events. We run a tour for ESPN events called the ESPN Events College Football Tailgate Tour. This will be our fourth year after sitting out last year because of the pandemic. It's a very fun activation. We really call it a 10-minute commercial for fans going to college football games. We're going to open the season over the Labor Day weekend with five consecutive games. We're going to be in Charlotte for the Appalachian State versus East Carolina game on Thursday night, September the 2nd. Then we're going to be in Blacksburg, Virginia, Friday night for a classic ACC matchup between North Carolina and Virginia Tech. Back to Charlotte on Saturday for what should be a classic, the Clemson versus Georgia game. Then on Sunday, we're going to be at a brand new HBCU classic called the Red Tail Classic, named after the Tuskegee Airmen. And it will be a game in Montgomery, Alabama, featuring Tuskegee versus Fort Valley State. And then we'll close that part of the tour with a Monday night visit back in Atlanta for Ole Miss versus Louisville. Then we're going to go to other great games. We're going to go to the Texas-Arkansas game, the Alabama at Florida game, the LSU at Mississippi game, and many, many others, and then culminate our tour with several bowl games. 
We have activations from multiple sponsors. Dollar General is a big sponsor, and they bring a number of vendors, and we do a tailgate toss program there for prizes and giveaways. We have a database registration to win sweepstakes, things like Budweiser grills, coolers, and cooking utensils. And Heiser-Busch sponsors free food. We have a celebrity chef that partners with the Beef Council. Those are the people that say beef, it's what's for dinner. And they're going to provide sirloin cubes and spices, and we'll be grilling those up and sampling those. One of our clients, RoofClaim.com, which protects your roof of your house, will be doing an interactive with helmets. And you know the helmet protects football players the way RoofClaim protects your house. And we have an interesting interactive where you can put the helmet on or hold the helmet And you can post it on your social site, tag our social sites, and have the ability to win that helmet. We have a new client and a new uh, activation partner in Jewelry Television. JTV will provide temporary tattoos and face paintings. And they will also sell football-themed jewelry uh, in the colors of the schools that are playing. We have lots of giveaways from... uh, wet wipes to keep you clean, to sunscreen, to uh, uh, chapstick, to uh, any number of things, and then food products like Cheez-Its and Pringles and Frosted Flakes and Pop-Tarts. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, This tour is kind of all about getting people back together, having laughs, having fun, having some food, listening to some music, doing some fun things. Now, this is a movable event. We travel each week, kind of like the carnival. But, of course, we also at Fishbait work on numerous single destination events like bowl games or basketball tournaments or food festivals or music festivals like the CMA Festival. We also have Grand Ole Opry shows each week. Then there are the permanent venues like the national parks and the battlefields we service And, of course, the College Football Hall of Fame, which is the perfect segue to our conversation with Kimberly Bowden. Let's welcome Kimberly to the bridge. Kimberly, welcome to the show. Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. Well, we always like to start with every guest with kind of the beginning. You know, where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to college? What was your first job? Well, so my first job out of college or my first job ever? Well, let's talk about where you grew up. Where, 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 okay. where, where's your hometown? My hometown is Auburndale, Florida. And that is pretty much dead center of the state, um, just off I-4. And lots of uh, orange groves and lakes and water skiing when I grew up. So you said your first job. So your first job before you went off to school, what was your very first job? I was, uh, I sold mistletoe for, uh, forever and I was a paper boy. So what was your first job? Well, there you go. I actually, you know, I got my start. I think I was meant to be in hospitality. My first job was at Cypress Gardens and I was a Southern belle. And I got to tell you in the summer in Florida, that was a hot job. That, that is a very cool job. We we were listening yeah. to something this weekend about Wiki Wachi and the mermaids oh, the mermaid. there. Yeah, remember yes. the mermaids? But, I do. But Cypress Gardens was one of those classic old school tourism places in Florida. So yes. so you spent time on water skis? 
I spent time on water skis and I spent time as a Southern Belle. So it was it was a good time. That's very cool. Well, where'd you go to school? So I was um, started at the University of Florida, um, and then started working at Disney in the summer, and fell in love with all things Disney and transferred to Central Florida, and that's where I graduated. So I graduated from UCF. And what and, and what did you do at Disney? So I was a tour guide, and then I did a couple of the shows there. So I, you know, I thought I was going to be a cast member forever, and, and then I had to grow up. My wife is from Live Oak, Florida. Yes. And she went to Disney World on opening day. Yep. In 1971? Yep. Opening day, wow. drove down and did that. You know, and it's such a great story about Walt, and, and he was so ahead of his time. But, you know, he built Disneyland, and he looked mm-hmm. around in Disneyland, and he was like, that restaurant across the street, am I getting any money from that? I uh, know. Uh, how about that hotel? No. So when he came to Florida, he said, I'm going to own it all. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have enough land to own the gas station, the restaurant, the hotel, mm-hmm. and all the theme parks. But I got to believe Disney was a great place to start, you know, your professional career because there were so many, you know, great executives there and so much learning that you could get. Talk, talk a little bit about your experience. So did you work there all the way through college? Um. I did. Uh, You know, as I got, you know, deeper into my studies, I actually uh, did my internship there as well in public relations. And it was during the 20th anniversary. So I'll date myself. That was 1991. And so that was an incredible time and an incredible experience. And, uh, you know, I just learned how to, you know, how to just welcome and be, be hospitable and and I think the biggest thing is there's no job too small because you will see an executive pick up a pan and broom and sweep to keep the experience exactly as it's supposed to be. And so I think that was instilled from day one is guest first and we're all in this together. There's no job too small. Yeah, my buddy and business partner, Mike Malay, who ran the Disney Wild World Sports Complex, later the ESPN Wild World Sports Complex, he always would talk about that. He'd say, how many custodians do we have at Disney? And somebody would say, oh, you have 200. And he'd go, oh, no, no. We, all of us. <laughs> More like 20-something thousand. Yeah, exactly. We're all going to – everybody's going to pick up trash. Everybody's going to fix things. Everybody's going to correct things and recover from bad guest experiences and all that kind of stuff. So – so you get out of school and you did what then? So I I did the uh, the typical I'm going to go backpack around Europe for a little while, which was I'm so glad I did it, and came back to Central Florida to winter to Orlando and was like I, I think I want to try something different. And so with two um, girlfriends, I moved to Atlanta. We said, hey, let's just go. And so we picked up and moved. And within six months, they were both gone. And, but I had landed a job at Turner Broadcasting, and so I stayed, and I'm still here. And so what did you do at Turner? So I started out in the ad sales department, and they, it was a, a, a little a niche area of ad sales that tracked the delivery uh, based on the CPMs and Nielsen ratings. So if you were promising 
a certain number of, you know, men 25 to 54 for a razor product, then we determined whether or not you met um, that guarantee and then tracked that. You know, what an interesting segue because you were in the hospitality business, but now you're in the ad business. And so you're, Mm -hmm. you're, you know, I often talk to a lot of young people and they'll say, you know, I've, I've got five years of experience and I'll go, you know, I hate to tell you this, but you really have one year of experience repeated five times. And, right. you know, I love the fact that you, A, were adventuresome enough to say, I'm going to get out of my, well, first of all, you were able to get out of your comfort zone and go to Europe. Mm-hmm. And that, I always tell young people, do that, do something mm-hmm. that changes your perspective on the whole world. And you learn a lot about yourself in that. And then you come back and say, you know what? I'm not going to go back to my comfort zone of Central Florida. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go to the big city of Atlanta and take a chance. And then not only that, I'm going to take a chance and I'm going to get a job doing something I'd never done before, mm-hmm. which helps you learn stuff. So you, after you left Turner, is that when you came over to our agency? or It, it absolutely is. I ran the CNN studio tour for four years. I had an opportunity to transition back into the hospitality and and marketing arena because, honestly, the CNN Studio Tour was a 45-minute commercial for CNN and Headline News that people paid for. And, you know, so not only did we make a profit every year, but they attributed about another $8 million in ad value to what we did in marketing value. Um, So, yeah, when I left the CNN Studio Tour, that is when I had the opportunity to join the gym group. And And you. And what did you do there? So there I shifted into the sponsorship sales world. And it was, you were representing several properties. My favorite was the bowling association. Yep. Uh, And I was working to try to find sponsors for the properties that we were representing. Women's Tennis Association. The, you know, who knew there was a whole association of bowling alleys. And then we had signed a couple of race car drivers, Dario Franchitti and Dan Weldon, and we're, you know, just trying to find them some personal deals as well. I think I, Ray-Ban was the first one that my first sponsorship deal I ever sold for Dario. You know, another lesson that I try to tell people is you're going to meet the same people over and over again on your professional journey. You know, the Bowling Proprietors Association of America came to us through Jack Kelly. Mm-hmm. And Jack Kelly had been my client firstly at the Goodwill Games and then secondly at the Bowling Proprietors and then lastly at the World Equestrian Games in Lexington, Kentucky. And so, <clears throat> you know, he worked on three uniquely different businesses, but the common denominator, fortunately for us, was he hired us at each step of the way. And mm-hmm. uh, and that's, you know, a, a lesson in our business is don't ever burn a bridge because <laughs> oh, no. you're going to come back across that bridge. So what did you do then before you joined the Hall of Fame? So I spent um, almost five seasons with the Hawks and Thrashers. So when I left the gym group, I completed kind of the transition into the sports world and served. I started as um, marketing manager for the Thrashers and then, you know, was promoted. And then when Turner at the time sold the teams to what became Atlanta Spirit, they said, well, we're going to create synergy. And I tell young people now, if you hear the word synergy, that just means more work and no more money. <laughs> 
That's the code word for that, right? That yeah. is the code yeah. word yeah. for yeah. we are going to double your work yeah. and we are not going to pay you anymore, <laughs> but you're going to get tremendous amounts of experience. So, you know, managing, um, you know, overseeing the marketing, the promotions, the, the, you know, the giveaway nights, the advertising, all of it for two professional sports teams with simultaneous seasons was really foundational, even at that point in my career, because there's really beyond that, nothing that could be thrown at me that I couldn't handle from a project management and just bandwidth standpoint. I just learned how to be so effective and efficient because you had, you didn't have a choice in, in that experience. And I tell you, walking in to the arena some nights, you really had to stop and say, wait a minute, is this a basketball game or a hockey game? Cause I'm really not sure. And then you're like, oh, concourse staff's in red. That's basketball. Let's go. Well, um, the ability to juggle, I think, is such a key uh, element in our in our business. The ability to pivot and do unique things. Um, and, and speaking of pivoting, so when you went to the Hall of Fame, now you become the executive director. You know, if you want to write a job description for, let, 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 let me run the Hall of Fame in the middle of a pandemic. Um, you know, I don't think many people would have chosen that. And then not only do you have the pandemic to navigate, but we had after George Floyd and a number of Mm -hmm. other racial issues, you had significant riots in downtown Atlanta that did a lot of, a lot of damage to the hall. Let's talk first about how you navigated COVID-19. So, I mean, some of it was truly out of our control and some of it was doing the best we could with the circumstances that we were dealt. So the first thing that we had to do was make the decision to close our doors. And we did that in conjunction with our neighbors and and our other partners downtown. And, you know, so from there it was, well, how do we manage expenses because we have zero revenue coming in and we have no idea when this is when this is going to end and we only have so much money in the bank and you know we furloughed um, a large portion of the staff so we were down to about six people when we and versus 41 and you know just planned and planned and then we kind of saw the the light at the end of the tunnel that we would be able to reopen um in June, we were aiming for Father's Day weekend, and that is when the the end of May is when the civil unrest happened and the building was significantly damaged. And so that kind of we had to pivot again and change that plan, not knowing how long it was going to take to get the building repaired. So, you know, when all was said and done, we were able to reopen on July 1st. We reopened with 20 full-time employees versus the 41 that we had had previously and just started trying to see where the business was going to go. And it was tough. July of 20 was really tough. We were open seven days a week and we made the decision after that, that we went to four days after July and we stayed that way until June of 21. What did you have to do to make people feel safe? We did, 
And I tell you, one of the one of the gifts that came out of of the pandemic, when you talk about being a new CEO and and being new to the role and having to deal with all the things in front of you, the the nonprofit cultural community came together, and the CEOs and executive directors were on a call every Thursday since Mar- and we we continue it to this day um, since March of twenty nineteen uh, March of twenty twenty, and to be able to talk through scenarios and to be able to say, okay, this is what we're going to do. And this is what we're hearing and, and, and come up with really a cohesive plan that we could all put in place. And that was so beneficial. And so it was a, a, a lot of planning and a lot of strategy, but a lot of therapy at the same time, because we were all going through the same thing. So to make the guests feel safe, you know, we, we looked at a lot of research around what was, you know, what guests were saying was going to make them comfortable. Masks, you know, some of it was optics, lots of extra cleaning, lots of hand sanitizer stations. We have 95,000 square feet, so we were built for social distancing and, you know, created a lot of signage in the building, you know, just encouraging, you know, that safe behavior. And, you know, slowly but surely people started coming back. You know, there was no rule book for this. I mean, I mean mm-hmm. there just wasn't. I mean, you know, if you look, you know, so many other things you think, well, we've done this before, we've done that before, we can apply this. This was a whole new kettle of fish. And, um, and it was interesting that you said you got together with some other CEOs of like, you know, you're, you're on Centennial Park, you've got the aquarium, mm-hmm. you got the World Coke, you got, you know, a number of children's museum, exactly all that to say, all right, look, what can we learn from each other? How do we constantly stay in communication? What are we finding? What are fans Mm -hmm. saying to us? Um, and, um, and, and interestingly, but I also, I I had so much respect for the way you handle the civil unrest. Um, y'all, your reaction to it was one of positivity and, and candidly, it was one of not only positively, but really love of the community. Talk a little bit about, you know, what you did, how y'all navigated that. And, and, and a really interesting exhibit came out of all that. It sure did. And, you know, it was just property damage. And I think that was the thing that, that was the most important is that nobody was, nobody was hurt. You know, it was the the glass could be fixed, the items in the store could be replaced, and the opportunity. Um, we gave a statement that night as it was everything was unfolding, and we just talked about the fact that, you know, the stories of the Hall of Famers that we exist to celebrate and preserve their legacy. So many of them fought the same battle that's still being fought today. And we wanted to be able to be a part of the solution and not just say, you know, feel bad for us. We got damaged. And so we were supposed to reopen because I think we've talked about, we've talked about, we have permanent exhibits and then we have um, a, a very cool space that we can program with temporary exhibits that are, are really relevant. And that was supposed to be on Southern football because we were to host SEC Media Days in July of 20. And obviously that got canceled. And Southern football just didn't feel like the right thing to do in that moment. 
But within Southern football was a very robust HBCU section. And I give tremendous props to our historian and curator who was able to take, you know, the core of what was there and blow it into, you know, a complete exhibit in about two weeks. And we opened with the special exhibit HBCUs and college football, their story. And it was very well received. And so we were, you know, really proud of that and proud of the, you know, the message that we sent, proud of the response. And from that, we were able to secure the funding for a new permanent HBCU exhibit that we actually opened on Juneteenth of this year, 2021. I just love that. I mean, I love the fact that, you you know, we always say, can you make chicken salad out of chicken? You know what? And, and y'all did. Uh-huh. I mean, y'all really, really <laughs> did. But you did it in a in such a positive way, you know, you, 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 number one, you were non-judgmental about the writers. Uh, I mean, you were, you just said, no, no, we're going to, we're going to try to heal people. We're going to honor the great historically black college football players in a unique way. And, and then you found, you know, a corporate sponsor that said, Hey, we, we like this enough to this ought to be part of the hall. Uh, I've mm-hmm. often tell people Atlanta, Georgia is the, in my opinion, is the is the you know the the national uh, uh, hometown of the African American experience in America, mm-hmm. and 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 to have that in the hall, and and you know people have forgotten that you know in the Jim Crow era, there were so few opportunities for black athletes, um, not only in the South but other places, mm-hmm. and these historically black colleges created amazing football players. <laughs> And amazing football and coaches. Amazing players, amazing coaches. And and the whole foundation is opportunity, community, and leadership. And those are the three, you know, values that, that they still instill today. And that sense of community, providing opportunity where it didn't exist. And, I mean, not only churning out incredible athletes, but but leaders. And so it's it the new permanent exhibit has also been very well received and very well supported by the community. And, you know, that's been really great to see. A lot of people don't know that the hall of fame is a, <clears throat> is really a joint venture with the national football foundation. And their mm-hmm. tagline has always been building leaders through football. And mm-hmm. I, I think in this case, you, you honored a number of, of African-American <clears throat> athletes and coaches that, that not only were great athletes and coaches, but became great community leaders. And many of mm-hmm. them continue to do that in a unique way. I'm, I think it's fascinating going in, into this season that we have, you know, a couple of, you know, really tremendous football players, Deion Sanders and Eddie George, mm-hmm. that are now going to be head coaches of HBCU schools, um, uh, obviously, Dion um, at Jackson State and Eddie George at Tennessee State. <laughs> Tennessee State, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's really kind of fascinating. We, you know, we we do a theme around every one of our shows, and this one was really talking about physical places and experiences today. And you mentioned you've got you know permanent displays and sponsors, mm-hmm. but you also create these special, unique, limited run exhibits to try to drive people you know, back to the hall, but also you, you create not only your own special events, but you allow the hall to be used for other special events. Talk a little bit about, about that. Absolutely. I don't, you know, when the hall opened, I think the anticipation was maybe 50 
100 private events a year. And it was such a unique and well-received event space that we, on average, get normal about 240 private events a year. And those range from, you know, obviously being connected to the Georgia Royal Congress Center and the large amount of, of convention business that the city sees, lots of hospitality and, you know, associated with those types of events. Uh, but we had a rehearsal dinner last Friday night. That's and very so it, cool. I know. <laughs> that is pretty cool. <laughs> it's like, you know, somebody once said to me, somebody up north, I think one of my New York friends one time said, football's Football's like it's it's almost you know it's, it's like a religion in the South, isn't it? And I mm-hmm. said, oh no, it's a lot bigger than that. <laughs> <laughs> and so in this case, it's such a lifestyle that someone decides to have the rehearsal dinner. Uh, you know, it'll be soon somebody's going to want to be married on your field there. Uh, you know, that is uh, the one thing we still haven't done. Yeah, I'm, I'm so. uh, that people will listen today and and will say, I'm going to do that. I'm going to come get married at all. Uh, that's well, that, we that's would we would fun. welcome it. That's for sure. But you know, but and ESPN has run their um, their Home Day Depot uh, award show there. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the SEC having media days there. I mean, there's been a lot of things connected to the game that have been there, as well as, like you mm-hmm. said, things not even connected to the game at all. Um, but let's talk about the economics. Um, you know, you, 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 you've a permanent event, a permanent, you know, facility. You have to have tickets sold, but you also mm-hmm. have to have corporate sponsors that are engaged. Talk about that balance. Uh, absolutely. So. We drive revenue from about four different sources, from admissions and and retail. So, you know, we definitely follow the Disney model and you exit through the store. And then we drive revenue from events and then sponsorship and philanthropy. A lot of folks don't realize that we are a nonprofit, 501c3. And part of the work I've done since I've been here is really trying to establish kind of that mission-based message that can live beyond the four walls of the experience. And again, kind of continuing that positivity and that message, how can we take what we have in the building and, and bring it out, you know, into the community, not just Atlanta, but across the country, because we are the National College Football Hall of Fame. There's only one. So, all of those work together to make sure that we're able to keep the experience updated and, and refreshed. I'm very proud to say that just since 2020, we've either renovated or put in four new exhibits, or I'm sorry, since January of this year, 2021, four new or renovated exhibits. So definitely not just sitting back on our heels, but the sponsorship investment is required to be able to do that. You know, I think your Disney background is so valuable for this and understanding that, you know, at Disney, there's such certain iconic, you know, activities that are always going to be there, but you've got to constantly refresh the show. You have to, you have to change the show to drive people to come back again and again and again. And yet you don't want, you know, you don't want to take away somebody's favorite exhibit either. Uh, right. And so it's that balance. I love the fact that the personalization of the experience, I want you to talk a little bit about that. You know, when you come in and you 
you talk about what school you're, you know, is your, your school and the helmet lights up. And so mm-hmm. you see, you know, at the one time, how many, you know, there's Michigan fans in here, Georgia fans in here, Grambling mm-hmm. fans in here, UCLA fans in here, that kind of thing that I think is really fascinating. And then you're able to kind of customize your own personal journey through the hall because there's so much to see um, that, that, you know, you really want it to be about my team and my experience. Talk a little bit about, about that technology. Absolutely. So the entire building is uh, wired um, with RFID technology, over 100 readers and antennas throughout the building. And the key to it is that all-access pass that you get um, as, a, as your ticket when you come in. And that's what you register and we get first name, last name. So the data we get is also very valuable. And then you choose your school. We get your school affiliation and your email address. And that's what lights your helmet. That's the first step on the journey. And people, you know, they walk in and see this three-story helmet wall with you know, over 775 schools represented. It's, you know, it takes a minute. It, you know, we call it that. It, that's their Disney moment. And then we have to kind of walk them through the registration process and explain the technology and then, you know, kind of have people throughout the building to help guide their experience. But with that RFID technology, when you walk up to fight song karaoke, for example, it's going to say, Kimberly, do you want to sing, you know, the Florida fight song? And, and I say, yes. And I get in there and the words are there, the music's there and it videos me. And then that's all saved to a digital locker that I can download and share. Um, at no additional charge. So we really, we think the value add of all of the digital content and user generated content you can create um, is really important to the experience. But we also think our fan ambassadors are, are equally important because they're able to tell the stories around the artifacts and the history and engage. I get, I joke, I say I get paid to talk smack for a living because people come in here in their gear and that, that natural you know, kind of back and forth just automatically happens between the guests and our staff. And, and it, it's just a really unique experience. I remember a, a few years ago, Florida, University of Florida ran a, an institutional ad called Go Gators, where literally Florida people around the world would see <laughs> someone mm-hmm. wear, wearing the mark and just say, Go Gators, Go Gators. I mean, in an airport, in a restaurant, in a Mm-hmm. business setting or something along those lines. And and y'all kind of have that um, in, in the hall. You you have this shared experience that many times, and what I love about it is, you know, Gary Stoken and the guys at the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl have done such a great job of bringing in lots and lots of um, neutral site games. Mm-hmm. And so you, then you have that fan base. And so, you know, you've got Coming up Labor Day weekend, you got Alabama fans and Miami fans in there, and then mm-hmm. two days later, you got Louisville fans and Ole Miss fans, which I, I think is really kind of, you know, interesting. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's incredible, and it and it gives it just the whole vibe. Of the building changes as you get these groups of fans, and they're all together, and they're you know all pulling for their team, but then their rivalries there as well, and it's it's a very cool dynamic. Well, I'm going to switch to something personal now. You, your husband also works in the industry, works for the Hawks. Do y'all, do y'all talk shop? Do you bounce ideas off, uh, uh, you know, to try to help each other? You know, we absolutely do. 
And it, it's really because he's in sponsorship sales for the Hawks and it's such a critical, critically important part of what we do. It, there's just a, a lot of opportunity for collaboration and it, it's just really great to have that resource. Um, you know, at the same time, you know, I'll be like, why haven't you introduced me to so-and-so yet? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And he's like, let me get my deal done first. Yeah, exactly. Like, well, it's the old sequencing. Once I get my deal done, I'll do it. You know, they had a great year. I got a, a you know, they had that great run in the playoffs mm-hmm. and, and just, I think, excited the city at a time that I felt like the city really needed something positive, positive um, absolutely. in the entire community. And it was such a great thing to, to do. So let's close with one final question. What, what's next for the hall? What do you want to do that you're not doing? You know, honestly, I think I, I alluded to it a little earlier, but it's continue to build out us as a nonprofit and for people to really understand how important it is to support the hall and the work that we're doing what someone said to me was what good the hall of fame if you're not teaching future generations how to be hall of famers and that doesn't mean on the field that means in life and we have the opportunity to use a position as a trusted authority i mean hall of fame is kind of this good housekeeping seal of approval to do a lot of good and to get you know to get a lot of messages out there and to be a positive influence and that's really important and i think that will hopefully be the legacy I leave when, you know, it's time to move on, but that's not going to be anytime soon. So, well, I think that's a great way to end today. Kimberly, I can't thank you enough for sharing your journey and your insights uh, and some of the things that you want to do to really, you know, help society by using the hall as a platform. And I thank you for being with us today from the bridge. Well, I thank you for having me, Captain. It's time to jump back up on that soapbox with one of my opinions. All the talk of conference raids and expansions usually leads to a discussion about Notre Dame. (laughs) What about Notre Dame, one of the last of the independents? Will they now consider joining a conference in football? Well, if they do, it has to be with the ACC. Because contractually, if they join a conference in football, they must join the ACC. They're already a sponsor of the ACC in every other sport. And if you remember last season, the ACC actually came to Notre Dame's rescue. When it was going to be difficult for them to schedule games because of the pandemic, they were allowed to play as a full participant in the ACC football season. I hope they'll join the ACC, but I have to admit, I kind of like their outlier style too. Independence today is really rare. Notre Dame is a very special place for football fans. If you never have been there, you must put that on your bucket list. It is a very, very, very special environment for college football I recently saw in the Sports Business Journal about their new Notre Dame network. I like what they are doing. They realize that direct-to-consumer is coming like a rocket ship, and they are preparing to identify their fans, communicate, and engage with those fans, and, of course, ultimately monetize their fans. I remember when 
they broke away from the College Football Association and signed an independent television contract with NBC. And I remember Sports Illustrated covered that story, and the title of that story was, We're Notre Dame and You're Not. (laughs) They are still the last one standing. It's going to be fascinating to watch. Speaking of Notre Dame, did you know that the College Football Hall of Fame was located in South Bend before it came to Atlanta? Speaking of Notre Dame and South Bend, there's a terrific, wait for it, Irish restaurant in downtown South Bend. It's Fiddler's Hearth. They have those great Irish favorites like fish and chips, bangers and mash, corned beef and cabbage, shepherd's pie, wonderful Irish stew made with lamb, and my personal favorite, the Molly Malone stew made with cod, shrimp, scallops, mussels, barley, and mushrooms. Yum. You grab a glass of Guinness from the bar, and you're ready to go. It's Fiddler's Hearth in South Bend, Indiana, on the road with Rick. That's our 12th show of the season, and we thank you for being with us today from the bridge. I appreciate Kimberly Bowden being with us today and appreciate all of you out there listening. I hope you'll join us again next week from the bridge.